City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, it's City Limits and it's our housing day today. Uh, this is Zeb speaking and we've also got Karina on the line. Hi, Karina. Hi, Zeb. How are you going this morning? Great. How are you going? Yeah, good. I'm I'm excited to edit this one. Your, your trial by fire, every 3CR newbies rite of passage, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Meg's away, Kevin's away. So it's just me having to do a lot of talking. <laughs> Well, we're pretty lucky this week, actually, because we had some big news over the weekend about some some money that the Victorian government's decided to spend on housing. So what better news than to start our housing week with, right? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. I'll just, um, I'll pour the tea in honour of Kevin. <laughs> there we go. Hopefully that came through. Hi, Kevin, if you're listening. All right, so yes, we're, we're going to be talking about this Victorian government announcement of spending $5.3 billion on 12,000 new social housing homes, and we'll be talking with our regulars, Shane McGrath from the Housing for the Age Action Group and Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing. And then, Karina, you've put together some interesting talks um, for the end of the show, haven't you? Cool, yeah, I have. So Shane's got another program that he does with HAG uh, that airs twice a month called Raise the Roof. And I don't know if any of the listeners remember, but a couple of months ago, maybe last program that he was on, he uh, mentioned a report that HAG put out about older LGBTI people and their risk of homelessness. Um, So specifically looking at housing within that group. Uh, so we've got a couple of speakers from a launch that they put on for that report and another report looking at the issue of housing with older LGBTI people. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, such an important issue. And yeah, I'm excited to listen myself. Yeah, it's interesting that it's really one of those areas that as one of the talks will really kind of delve into, it's really under-researched and under-represented mm-hmm. in academia. So I believe that that report is the first of its kind, which seems crazy to say in 2020, but here we are. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. At least we're, we're putting it to air a second time so everyone gets another chance to listen to it. <laughs> exactly. Well... Yeah, without further ado, we might go on to our interviews. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Today we have both Shane McGrath from Housing for the Age Action Group and Howard Morosi from Friends of Public Housing on the line. So, hi Shane, hi Howard. Uh, hi Zeb. Hi. How are you going? Good. I mean, I'm just a little worried that we're going to struggle for anything to talk about this week because there's been no news in housing in Victoria. Uh, such a quiet <laughs> <a> time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that is... <laughs> Very accurate. Um, Just this one slightly massive announcement that the Victorian government um, has committed $5.3 billion towards building 12,000 social housing homes throughout Melbourne and regional areas. So I'm just going to throw it to you guys. Sounds like an exciting announcement, but what's your take on it? Well, actually, Shane wasn't joking. (laughs) He was actually being serious because it's really not much more than... Uh, well, it's potentially nothing for public housing. And the reason for that is because there's been no definition of whether the new housing is going to be public housing or community housing. Mm. So it could all be community housing. And we know that's been the government policy so far, to mainly to have community housing. Um, you know, we still haven't had any new housing built under the Andrews government, which is actually public housing. We've had promises. 
and intentions that some of it will be, but the majority, even under the promises, the, the promises have been mainly for community housing. Yeah, okay. Howard, so I'm a newbie to the show and I don't know too much about housing. Could you give me like the quickest rundown of all of these terms? So what's the difference between community, affordable and public housing? And then is social housing a overall term that people are using for all of those together? Yeah. Well, you're kind of the right person because I probably have to define this for people probably three or four times every week. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the, the umbrella term is social housing. So social housing means either community housing or public housing. Okay. Public housing means housing owned and managed by the state government, whereas community housing could be either or both of ownership or management by a private organisation. They call themselves community housing organisations, but they are private. Yeah. Uh, affordable housing means neither of those. It means housing which uh, has a discount of 20% from the market rate. And uh, that's kind of a general term. If it's, if it's federal government funded under the national housing agreements, at least under RUD, since the RUD government, uh, the agreement has been for the landlord, the owner, to receive $100,000 from the federal government for 10 years, over, sorry, over 10 years, in return for keeping the rent 20% below market rate. And then once the 10 years is up, they're free to do whatever they like. So that's, that's a federal government version of affordable housing for the last 10 years. And I think, although I'm not sure, the state governments use some sort of similar definition of uh, the rents charged Whereas funding, you know, situation from the state governments would be different. Obviously, they don't all give $100,000 per unit in subsidy. And of course, the differences between community housing, social housing and affordable housing are immense for the tenant. So public housing uh, rents are limited at 25% of the tenant's income. And if the tenant's income changes, then the, uh, the rent changes with community housing the rents can technically um, are limited to 30% of the tenant's income, but we've had cases where they've charged more and the organisations will often hide behind commercial confidentiality to um, refuse to, to disclose figures to allow, uh, or even an organisation like Housing for the Age Action Group representing a tenant to know whether they're actually sticking to the 30% and then they've been forced to reveal when when an organisation has gone to a tenant to a, on behalf of a tenant to VCAT. VCAT has actually ordered them to reveal figures which actually show sometimes that they're charging more than 30% and they've hidden it. They also hide their uh, rents in the form of higher uh, fees, like you know administrative type fees. Mm, okay. Whereas those kind of fees are minimal with public housing. So that's only rent. I mean, there's also security of tenure. So you have security of tenure in public housing. Once you qualify for the uh, under the income test, you're in and your rent will go up or down according to your income, uh, whereas that's not the case with community housing. You don't have security of tenure. Once your lease is up, they can evict you. And the third thing is admissibility. So uh, any Victorian or any Australian who qualifies for the income test uh, for public housing can be admitted. They go onto the waiting list and uh, they will take their turn and there's a priority list, but eventually you'll get to the top of the list. It might take 10 years or, or longer, uh, whereas with community housing, there's no obligation for the organisation to take someone off a list, and they tend to cherry-pick the people on higher incomes. They have a small amount of people on lower incomes, maybe only 3%, whereas they're supposed to be taking... It's stated by the Victorian government as, as to up to 50%. Up to 50% can be, you know, one person. So they're the main differences between community housing and public housing and affordable housing. But the big thing is that people don't realise it because the mainstream media continually hides the difference in the way they uh, continually refer to social housing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, go along, Shane. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to add a couple of things about some of the key differences from my perspective, just to add to what Howard was saying. Like Howard touched on this, but, but from my point of view as someone who 
largely works as a tenant advocate, one of the big differences between public and social housing is around the, the transparency and accountability um, in the way they apply policies. So in public housing, there is a pretty clear and robust and expansive set of policies that guide how decisions are made about managing tenancies. Whereas for a lot of community housing organisations, it seems that they don't have policies about a lot of areas. Um, they rely on the you know, decisions made often in good faith, but you know, sometimes not so much by individual housing workers and their managers. So it can be quite capricious. It can vary from tenant to tenant, from property to property. And it also means that there aren't protections that exist for public housing tenants. Specific areas like temporary absence, which protects public housing tenants who are in prison for a short period, their tenancies can be sustained, whereas most social housing organisations don't have anything like that. So if somebody's in prison for a few months, six months, something like that, it's very likely that they're going to be evicted for rent arrears in the meantime. Mm. Another key difference, and this goes back to what Howard was saying about uh, security of tenure, my experience has been that community housing organisations are much more willing to evict people um, sometimes, again, for quite capricious reasons, uh, we saw there was one rooming house we saw where a worker's belongings were stolen from a common area and the provider couldn't determine who exactly had stolen the belongings. So they served no reason notices to vacate to everyone. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Is a, a, a shocking and outrageous way for a, a community housing organisation to, to act. We also see again and again, like rent arrears are probably the most common reason that people are evicted from any form of housing, but certainly from public and social housing. Public housing is much more willing to negotiate payment plans with tenants, um, even very long ones. So we see, you know, people who can't afford to pay back rent arrears in a big lump sum will be given quite long periods to repay it in an affordable and sustainable way. But we don't see that very often or nearly as much from social housing. And in fact, we see community housing groups quite often advocating that VCAT should be harsher in evicting their tenants for rent arrears because their budgets are, are so strained by even modest amounts of rent arrears. Of course, the government doesn't have that problem. The government's budget is not strained if a, a tenant you know, needs a year or even three years to pay back those arrears, um, whereas community housing organisations can be really stressed um, if that week-to-week -week rent isn't coming in, which is another reason that we should always prefer public housing over community housing, I think. Yeah, okay. That <laughs> makes a lot of sense. There is a massive difference. And so this Victorian government announcement, they haven't specified how many of the new homes are going to be public housing and how many are community housing, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's worth mentioning that we're recording this on Monday morning and there is going to be a press conference later today. So some of that detail may be available by the time people are listening to this. There were some sort of gestures in the information that was released. For example, they mentioned in the age that 1,100 existing public housing units would be replaced. Um, so we know there is something for public housing, but I guess especially with what we've seen in some of the estate demolitions and ideas about public-private partnerships and things like that, um, reasons for caution when the government talks about replacing public housing units. Yeah, I mean, people have already jumped the gun. You know, we can go through the, the actual um, article. It's worth just looking at the detail just because it illustrates how this, the uh, system works to mislead people. I mean, you start off with the announcement itself. You know, there's a lot of hype about it. In the Age article says, Victoria will pump $5.3 billion into building more than 12,000 homes within 40 years. The biggest single spend on social housing in the state's history. Housing Minister Richard Wynne, without this doubt, this is the biggest commitment by any state government ever will boost the state's social housing supply by 10% within four years. This will change lives. I'm just going to reading off what they've said. This will change lives, giving thousands of Victorians the security and stability of a home and tens of thousands of Victorians a job. This makes a huge dent in the social housing waiting list. And then you look at the figures. Well, it's not a huge dent. It's not, it's not the biggest ever. I, I really don't think it's the biggest ever, even in terms of... Uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't even break it down into public housing, you just look at social housing. So they're going to build effectively uh, 8,000 public or community housing and 3,000 affordable housing, right? 
So social housing, you're only talking about 8,000, and that's over four years. So that's 2,000 houses per year social housing. Now, you go back at the figures, and I can go back to 1981. 1981 and 1986, public housing across Australia increased by 50,000, right? It's across Australia, but Victoria's about a quarter of that. So in those five years, social housing, which was then just public housing, would have increased in Victoria by something like the same amount as what we're getting now over four years. Mm. Right, that, that was in 81-86. But the second half of the Hawke government term was when the big increase occurred. There was an increase of double that, more than double that, 118,000, right? So Victoria would have had, in that time, would have had twice what we're getting now. So I really don't think it's the biggest ever. But the state government can make those assertions because they get away with much you know, less wild assertions. <laughs> so just to look at the figures, we've, we've now got 65,000 public housing units right in Victoria. It's about something like 160,000 people. So you compare that to the waiting list. Now, I'm not clear about this. Shane might be able to comment. The waiting list now includes both community housing and public housing in the one list. So we're not exactly sure how many are public housing, but let's assume most of it's public housing. So the waiting list is now 100,000 people. So we would think that the number of units needed to satisfy that would be somewhere around close to 50,000, around 50,000, right? Yeah, I think, the, I think the number of households on the waiting list, sorry, I've got this written down, is 48,529 at last count. So 50,000 is right on the nose. Yep. Wow. So 50,000 units, we've only got 65,000 now. Yeah. So it's not a 10% increase we need. Just right now, if they were to build instantaneously and the number of units we needed to clear the waiting list, they would have to build 50,000, which is actually an increase of 80%. Yeah, okay. Right, not 10%, 80%. And it's also going up by um, about 9,000 people every year, which is equivalent to about 5,000 units per year. So in four years' time, after they've built their extra 10%, It'll probably, as I said, it'll probably mainly be community housing. So we'll probably need another 60,000 public housing units, which is an increase of 90% of supply will be needed in four years. If they don't, if they don't build public housing, they just build community housing. Right. So that's sounding a lot like more like what the Victorian Greens were announcing is their housing amendment bill with the 100,000 new public homes by 2030. How does this announcement that's just come out fit in with the Greens bill? Well, that, it's really good that you mentioned that because when that announcement was made, and don't forget the bill for the uh, Green New Deal was actually passed through Parliament, right? So it was actually not just approved by Parliament overall, but it was actually approved by the ALP. Yeah, right. Right. It doesn't have any force of legislation, so it's just like a motherhood statement, effectively. And I was waiting to see what was going to happen, because I thought, how does this actually fit in with the, the fact that we've had no progress at all from the ALP under Andrews, and we've had privatisation of public housing? And I thought, gee, we might have to wait a while to find out. No, it took about two days, and we already know that it's just a furphy. So the Greens policy would actually clear the waiting list and then build enough either for future people that, that need to go on the waiting list or people that would like to go on the waiting list now but can't. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I'll, I'll just ask for Shane to correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that to get on the waiting list for public housing, the income levels are about half of what the income levels are for to get into the waiting list for community housing. So that means that once we've cleared the waiting list for public housing, we can actually offer people the option of going into public housing rather than community housing by doubling the income test for public housing, right? That would generate a lot more people wanting to get into public housing and that could actually use up a lot of the, the 100,000 that the Greens are proposing to build over the next 10 years because their aim is to give everyone that wants public housing a house. Right, not just satisfy the waiting list. And mm. that means that you would, you would actually alter the, the uh, income test eventually, which we support in Friends of Public Housing and Defend and Extend Public Housing Australia. So the Green New Deal 
was rightly well covered. Well, actually, I was surprised that it was so well covered by the mainstream media. It was covered by Channel 7 and other mainstream media, including the Herald Sun, actually, uh, which was amazing. And it was actually stated in terms of public housing. There was no equivocation in the coverage of the Green New Deal. It was all about public housing. Mm-hmm. And now the media's failed to follow up. The media's failed to say, does this match the Green New Deal in any way, in either the amount that's being promised or the type of housing that's being built? they failed, completely failed. And on the other hand, we've had uh, organisations like the Victorian Council of Social Services, the Victorian Public Tenants Association, um, as we know, normally just follow the government line and that's all they've done now. They've failed to point out any of these problems. Right. Then we go to the Greens and the Greens MPs, you know, rightly we're talking about how great the, the Green New Deal would have been. But unfortunately, you go to their comments and uh, I'm just going to bring them up here. The comments from Ellen Sandell was probably the most accurate because if you go to Ellen Sandell's Facebook page, she's pointed out that the government has still not stated whether it's going to be public housing or community housing. So that's the kind of comment we want to hear. She's also pointed out there's only 12,000 homes to deal with 100,000 people on the waiting list. So she's been quite you know, balanced in her analysis. Whereas you go to someone like Tim Reid, another Greens MP, this is a great announcement for people on the public housing waiting list, but we don't know if it's at all for the public housing waiting list. The Victorian government deserves credit for making housing a priority. Well, they haven't made housing a priority and they don't deserve credit. The 8,000 new social homes will accommodate most of the increase in the waiting list. Again, not correct. Rent-controlled private units is another excellent initiative. Now, Tim Reid is there referring to the affordable housing as a form of rent control. Now, as I said, it's a 20% discount from the market rate, but I'm not speaking as a public housing advocate, but speaking as a commentator on housing generally, private housing, it's not excellent. You know, the market rate is far too high and we, would, we should be looking at something like 50% cut in rents for people that need rent control. And we don't even know how stringent the, uh, the test is in terms of the rent control itself. Yeah, okay. Yep. I mean, that also, that also goes back to what you were saying about, you know, wanting public housing to be available to, to everyone who wants it. This attempt to kind of like separate and ghettoise out low and middle income workers from the, the sorts of, you know, formal, formally disadvantaged cohorts that the government wants to reserve public and social housing for. Like, that's part of the problem. We want public housing to be available for everyone. We don't want to create this new system of unaffordable, but slightly better than the market rate, private rental for for uh, people who should be able to access public housing in the first place. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, okay. And on that, um, Shane, do you have any particular comments on how this affects older tenants? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I feel more optimistic about it maybe than how it does. Um, certainly a cautious optimism, uh, but any increase in spending on housing, I think, is a, is a good thing. Older people are the fastest growing age group for public and social, social housing, both in Victoria, uh, as well as the fastest growing age group in private rental. Um, so this will affect older people in particular. The government's made some announcements uh, at this point about specific groups that will benefit from from the the housing announcements so things like a thousand dwellings for indigenous victorians and a thousand for victims of family violence um two thousand for people living with mental illness obviously older people do make up parts of all of those groups but it'll be interesting to see also whether there is specific housing or specific parts of this funding that is set aside for older people's public and social housing yeah great karina did you want to say something before yeah, it was a little bit off topic now. I was just um, thinking about how interesting it is that the, I guess, the hype surrounding the announcement, a lot of it was talking about the job creation aspect of it and how interesting it is that at the same time that demolitions are going on in, in Walker Street and in Dunlop Avenue and Ascot Vale on walk-ups, on low-rises that were independently assessed to have been able to stay standing for, what was it, several decades, I think. Interesting that this announcement comes up and really feels like that uh, push, I guess, for the job creation spin 
kind of following this construction for construction's sake sort of mentality. Yeah, I mean, part of, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent to what you're saying, but kind of follows from it. I mean, I think part of the reason why the government can pass this off as such a tremendous announcement is because their record is so bad. Like, we're starting like six feet underground and we're just happy to be able to look up and see the sky. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) the Victorian government spends far less than any other state uh, on public housing so and social housing prior i'm not sure how this announcement will change that but has a long-standing track record of being way below the national average um i think it spends i think previously the victorian government has spent half the national average per person on social housing like how it is said there's a hundred thousand people on the waiting list uh, a massively underfunded and neglected system the hard lockdown of the high-rise towers, uh, uh, not even early, midway through the pandemic, was another just excruciating sign of how badly public housing is treated in this state. Um, th- this is the, like, the dump that we're in, that we can look up at this, this like, tiny fragment of what we need and see it like a, a lifeline, you know? We can actually put a figure on it, Shane. 57 homes have been built by the Andrews government. Out of a 1,000? Yeah. Yes, I, sorry, I've got that written in my notes when I skipped that. They promised a 1,000 homes by 2022 and they've built 57 of them. So hopefully we won't see those same proportions carried over to the 5.3 billion uh, that we're talking about now. Mm. To, be, to be fair, like they have been held up with some of the developments they promised because of the fact that they weren't promising public housing. Uh, the Ashburton development was blocked by the local council and held up. And I think the same in Preston. But, you know, that's a valid reason to hold it up. They they might have gone ahead and they might have even completed it now, but it would have largely been private and possibly no public housing anyway. So that's part of the reason for the for 57. But, you know, they've got heaps of, of uh, sites that they own that they could have just gone ahead over the last six years and built genuine public housing instead of selling off those sites. And... I think that the announcement actually covered a little bit of that. So if you look if you look at the detail of the announcement, it looks like they've actually been reading the stuff that the um, housing public housing advocates have been posting and criticising them about, and then just you know putting in a little bit uh, of change of policy for that. So for example, they're talking about spot purchasing. There was a, a reference to. Uh, the state government using some of the money to buy already built properties to put people in in the short term, which, you know, uh, Joe Toscano has been talking about for quite some time from Defend and Extend Public Housing Australia. And of course, we support them to do that. We don't have a problem whether it's already built or whether it's uh, to be built. But the problem arises when when you, you try to necessarily you know, cater your, your policy just for jobs or to say, well, we do jobs and then think about, oh, well, you know, and it does also help um, people in housing. The priority has to be housing, right? The jobs don't have to come in construction. They can come in other sectors which have been badly hit. There are other ways to, to have a recovery apart from always emphasising construction. But as I said, the main, the main thing is to get people in public housing. For example, just coming off that quickly, Howard, just yep. it's like all the stuff that came out with the public housing towers lockdown. It's like just off the top of my head, I can think of, oh, well, why not employ cleaners directly? You know, yeah. why not why not have these long-term structures and, and employment positions in place? Yeah, with, with security of employment as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a little bit like this announcement. I, I think Zeb knows a little bit more about it than I do, that, that co-health and independent organisation is actually employing Public Towers residents to make and disseminate and translate their own coronavirus information and employing about 80 or so residents to do that. And it's like, well, why isn't the government doing this? Why is it on a non-government company, a not-for-profit organisation, to be actually employing people 
that need it the most. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about the difference between public and social housing as it as affects tenants, which obviously is is vitally important. But from the government's point of view, one of the big benefits of shifting from public towards social housing is that you don't employ people with like good wages and conditions and good yep. public service jobs and permanent positions. You employ people on insecure short term contracts that roll over to the like you know whims of funding bodies. That's it. And and with less you know less union representation, less less protections for workers everywhere. Yeah, and that's something they should be called to account for, but they're not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Just maybe one positive that that pops up from this announcement is that, you know, even though it's not up to scratch of what Victorians need, the fact that they have been listening to these housing activists is at least a testament to, to the work of those housing activist groups um, that you're a part of and shows that the pressure from those groups is really important even though we haven't got to where we need to be, if you guys weren't there, then <laughs> we'd probably be in much more dire straits. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, I think that's really true. Um, I think I, I've said this before on this show, but I think it's a real testament to the work that public housing activists have done that there is like a level of public consciousness about the difference between public and social housing. I, I really don't think that existed, you know, three, five years ago. As an example, perhaps a slightly embarrassing example, I went on a first date yesterday and as we were talking, uh, my date was like, oh, so is, it, is there a difference between public and social housing? Like, can you, can you explain that? And I'm sure that like not far in the past that was, you know, people, even people who are quite active on the left just had no idea about these things. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's been a real success for public housing activists. I reckon you got your perfect match there, Shane. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing the uh, the second date outcome. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe I can report back next month. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the other... Uh, actually, I'm kind of switching between points. But anyway, just to go back to the point I was saying before. So the government has now said that they're going to establish a new agency called Homes Victoria to deliver and manage public housing, which sounds like they're backing off privatisation. And that's another thing we've been calling for over the years. You know, we're calling for the government to take over the construction of public housing and and reinstate what used to be, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there used to be a, a department of the Victorian government until Jeff Kennett's time. Public servants used to design and build public housing, very good quality public housing, much better than what has been built since then and much cheaper than since then. So it kind of looks like they're doing that, but then you, you, you go further on in the article and you see that the, the minister says uh, the government would work with social housing providers, the private sector and local government to deliver the housing. Well, what's what's Homes Victoria going to do? They're probably just going to transfer the public service and now work for the department of DHHS over to Homes Victoria, I would imagine. And as well, with the building program, they're talking about building on vacant sites the government already owns. Now, that's something they haven't committed to do before. You know, they were committing to selling off vacant sites and they were committing to knocking down already existing public housing. So there there may be some progress there if they do retain some of their their land. Uh, Actually, the other thing I was thinking about was you can see how the impact of the union movement has come through because Trades Hall got together with some of the social housing and social welfare groups a few years ago and put up a petition calling for the construction of something like two or 3,000 houses a year, you know, a pathetically small amount, and would have been satisfied with that. And you know, it keeps them quiet to know that the government's creating work for building workers, whereas we would like to see them. We have asked uh, the CFMU and also Trades Hall to come out and support the campaign, but they won't do it, unfortunately. It's, we're not looking at a Jack Mundy type situation. So how can we and listeners help to push for a movement closer to what the the Green New Deal is going to be about? How can listeners support your campaigns? We'd love to see more people put their hands up, but even if you just follow what we do on our Facebook pages, so there's Friends of Public Housing Victoria. Is there anything that we can go and talk about on social media? Yeah, well, there is. I mean, we, I put up an analysis of the latest announcement. If you just have a look at that and you um, you comment accordingly on your own Facebook page, 
uh, and your friends' Facebook pages, or if you want to join in discussion and debate, um, that'd be great. You know, I mean, Dan Andrews has has put up a post about it. He actually posted the Age article, and he's now got 1,170 comments. So good luck being noticed there. But it just shows the power when you make an announcement and there's hype about it, how you can get away with it. So, you know, he's had 11, 1,170 comments and Defendant Extend has had maybe five. You know, it just shows what we're up against. But it doesn't stop us from doing it. You know, we're going to keep doing it because it's the right thing to do and he's doing the wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, if people want to get involved specifically in the work that HAG does around older people's housing, which is very focused on public housing in particular, uh, AGM is actually this week our first ever uh, online annual general meeting, which may be a bit of an adventure, but I'm sure we'll, we'll manage well. Uh, that's this Thursday from 11 till 12.30, Thursday the 19th. If you are interested in attending, you can go to our website, which is oldertenants.org.au, and there's a little online form you can fill out there to attend. Um, if people don't uh, use the internet so much, don't have good online access, you can just phone in with a regular phone uh, and attend that way. But yeah, all the details on our website at oldertenants.org.au, uh, or our members should have received something in the mail. Okay, thank you, Shane. So any last comments? Yeah, I mean, the other thing to say is that, you know, in relation to what Shane was saying before, we have forced the media to actually talk about the difference between uh, the words social housing, community housing and public housing. So the Age and the ABC, well, the Age definitely did talk about the difference in terms of, well, they basically just said, they were talking about the rent differential between public housing, community housing and the difference between the, the actual terms themselves. They didn't go into, well, they didn't make the observation that once you get over 25% of your income, you're in housing stress, which means that if you're in community housing, you can be pushed automatically into housing stress. They didn't talk about the fact that community housing charges fees. They didn't talk about the adjustment in income. They didn't talk about what Shane was talking about before in terms of the, the um, hodgepodge of policies that the community housing sector has. They wouldn't talk about the lack of security of tenure. So it's a really bland kind of explanation of difference in the age. Um, but at least they have started to, to, to um, make that distinction. And it's not that they don't know about it. We keep telling them about it. They just might run it. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you, Shane and Howard, for that more critical perspective on the recent big government announcement. That's all we've got for today on City Limits um, for our housing update. Um, so, yeah, just thank you again, Shane McGrath and Howard Morrissey for coming on. And thank you for Karina for helping out with co-hosting today. Yeah, great. Thanks, Deb. Yeah, thanks, Deb. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> so that's it for City Limits this week. Don't forget to tune in next time. To finish up today, we're going to leave you with a couple of short talks from a launch of two reports that um, Housing for the Aged Action Group, HAG, put on a month or so ago. So the first speaker is Fiona York from the Housing for the Aged Action Group, who discusses the findings of the report that talks about uh, older LGBTI people and housing, specifically uh, risk factors for homelessness. So she goes into that in a little bit more detail. And if you'd like to look at that report, you can find it on the publications section of HAG's website, which is oldertenants.org.au. Next up will be Tonya Segbedzi from the Australian Association of Gerontology, talking about their review on research that's been conducted on the housing needs and preferences of old LGBTI people, or I guess more accurately, the lack thereof. You can access this report online at aag.asn.au. Fiona York is the Executive Officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group, HAG. Fiona has 15 years experience in the community sector, working mainly in ageing, elder abuse and diversity. HAG is the convener of the LGBTI Elders Housing Reference Group and, the, and in the process of earning a rainbow tick accreditation. Welcome to the screen, Fiona. Hello everyone, um, it's really exciting to be here. Before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm also on Wurundjeri land and that sovereignty was never ceded and it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. 
So we're really excited to be here today. Um, for those of you who don't know us, we're a small community organisation. We started in 1983 from a, by a group of older women who were public housing advocates. Um, so over the years we've grown, we now have about um, 480 members and we deliver the Home at Last service, which is a specialist older persons housing service and it provides information and support to people who are aged 50 years and older. And so we have an early intervention approach. Um, we try to reach people before they um, are at crisis point, and then we can prevent that crisis from happening. So we're an organisation that specialises in housing for older people, and we have really detailed specialist knowledge about that, but we're a mainstream service, as Ro mentioned. So we are going through rainbow tick at the moment, but we're by no means experts on the issues for older LGBTI people. So we thought it was really important for us to partner with services and organisations who are embedded in the LGBTI community, particularly those that work with older people. So we can find out exactly what's going on for them in terms of their housing circumstances and their knowledge of housing options. Um, so about two years ago, we formed this steering committee and we knew that there was a real lack of research into this area, which Tonya will be talking about shortly. Um, and we think that this research that was just launched today is a world first in terms of looking at these issues. So between 2019 and 2020, we surveyed and interviewed 228 older LGBTI people about their housing circumstances. Um, whether they rent or own, can they afford the rent? Are they in housing stress? Do they know where to go for help? And have they thought about their housing options as they get older? So they came from a variety of housing backgrounds, um, including public and social housing tenants, couch servers, homeowners, renters, and they were interviewed face-to-face -face over the phone and they completed surveys at Midsummer and online. So I'm now gonna tell you a little bit about what we found out and you can read more about this in the reports online. So the first significant finding that we found was that our research showed that LGBTI older people have experienced homelessness and housing stress at higher rates than the general population. So 40% of participants said that they had experienced homelessness and 16% said that they were currently at risk. And these replicate the findings of a survey that was under, undertaken by the Victorian Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby. But we actually think that these figures are just the tip of the iceberg because there were even higher numbers of older LGBTI people that were living in circumstances that actually placed them at risk um, of homelessness or of housing stress. So some of those risk factors include much lower rates of home ownership. So less than half of our participants indicated they own their own home. And of this group, only 27% owned their home outright. So when you compare that with the general population, age 55 and older, we have 85% owning their own home with 65% owning it outright. So you can see there's a real disparity there. The other risk factor, as Ro mentioned, is living in private rental. So the sad reality is that lots of older tenants who are living in private rental at the moment are at risk of homelessness because of the high rents and the constant threat of eviction and the inability to make modifications to their homes to allow them to age in place. So of the people that we surveyed, over a third were living in private rental, and of this group, 36% were on a government pension, and a third were unable to afford the rent currently. So with so much of their income being spent on housing costs, older LGBTI people that live on the pension were in significant poverty, with not much money left over after they pay the rent. The other risk factor is living alone. And the reason that um, that places you at risk, if, especially if you're in private rental, is just because it's really hard to pay the rent on one income. So the number of people living alone in our sample was significantly higher than the general population. We had 47% of people aged 55 to 64 in our survey compared to only 6.2% of the general population. So that's seven times higher, which is significant. The other thing that we noticed in the research was that there was a bit of a trend about living in sort of what we would say, I guess, unconventional housing circumstances. So resorting to kind of, well, I guess not necessarily, but potentially undesirable um, measures to avoid a housing crisis. So for example, people told us about staying in unhappy relationships to have financial security. 
um, stay, subletting rooms, staying with friends temporarily or living in um, inappropriate, unsuitable accommodation because they had no other options. And these measures may work for a little while, but unless people are clear about the expectations going forward as you age, it may, relationships may break down and then you can find yourself in real trouble. So that was another trend that we noticed. The last significant trend as a risk factor that we found was that there were really high numbers of older people living with disabilities and in caring roles. So for those people that were on the disability support pension, 40% identified as currently at risk of homelessness and 80% had previously been at risk of homelessness. For those in caring roles, 23% said that they were currently at risk of homelessness. So I guess the most alarming finding for us in this research was that people don't know that they're at risk um, and they don't know where to go for help if they are finding themselves in trouble. So they're two pieces of really important information. An example of this um, is Leanne. So she's a 65 year old lesbian who currently lives alone in private rental that she can't afford. She's not in paid employment. She has no superannuation and she relies solely on the disability support pension for income. Despite having several risk factors for being homeless, she doesn't identify herself as at risk. And the most alarming thing is that she had no awareness of support services if she was to become homeless. And she's not alone because 63% of the people that we spoke to had limited or no knowledge at all of housing options for older people. And 60% didn't know where to go to find that out. The other story um, that we heard was an example here of um, Pat, who's a 50 year old bisexual. And at the time that we surveyed, um, they were homeless and couch surfing at friends between living in their van. So Pat is not engaged in paid work um, and relies solely on the government pension for income. But despite experiencing homelessness currently, they stated they had no knowledge of services that could help them. And that was the same for 65% of people who self-identified as currently being at risk. They didn't know where to go. So what can we do about it? Um, we think we need urgent sector and policy responses around LGBTI people and housing, particularly older people um, who are to reduce the risk. So we need urgent policy reform. Um, the first thing that we're calling for is that we need more housing options. We need more appropriate housing options for older LGBTI people. There's a housing shortage and we need more housing. The second thing is we need to provide better homelessness and housing support services for older LGBTI people. Um, and that involves providing training to the existing housing and homelessness sector so that they do know how to respond if people are fronting up at their services. The other thing we need is to improve our data collection methods. Um, currently, we're not collecting the data and it's really difficult to be able to track the problem unless that data collection is routinely done throughout the whole sector. And the last thing we're calling for is funding for further research, um, especially for underrepresented groups. So we've prepared a policy snapshot, which is on our website. The link's been shared in the chat. Um, and our full report goes into a lot more de detail about these issues and I'd encourage you all to have a read. Um, now, if I may, I may, I'm gonna quickly play a video from one of our partners, um, Pauline Primary from Val's Aging and Aged Care, who talks about why we need to have um, these services in place. So hopefully this is gonna work. Let's, you know, technology, let's see how we go, hey? Safely. I think one of the um, areas that we often um, recognise is that people don't plan as they age and I think this housing project is a really important step to ensure that older LGBTI people are, will do become aware of their housing options and the need for secure and safe housing as they age. We're really excited to be part of this project and um, we recognise that there needs to be a lot more information um, for all services who are working with older LGBTI people, but um, importantly for older LGBTI people themselves so that they have a range of information um, that can support them as they age. Great. That's it from me, Joe. I'll hand back over to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Fiona. And um, 
you know, one of the reasons at Switchboard Victoria that we set up the Rainbow Door was recognising the need for a navigator connector service in order to help people access services through, the, you know, these stories that we saw in our Out and About program and our work um, supporting older LGBTI people is we, we, we came across the same experiences in our service provision. Um, and that is one of the focuses of Rainbow Door is to provide information and referral and support to older people. However, the piece of the puzzle there is um, we need to, you know, we need to build the referral pathways that, in order that we can refer people on. So um, I encourage people to use the Rainbow Door as a connected navigator mold, model, but also I really encourage you to take up um, the policy position that, uh, that, that HAG has put forward today um, and become active around this issue. Our next speaker is uh, uh, Tonya Segbazi. Um, and, and Tonya Segbazi is a Senior Policy and Research Officer at the Australian Association of Gerontology. Tonya has 25 years in legal and policy roles in the corporate, public and not-for-profit sectors, including senior roles at Phillips Fox Lawyers, Victorian Legal Aid, Legal Services Board and the Department of Human Services and Volunteering Victoria. Welcome to the screen, Tonya. Hello. Hello, everyone. My name is Tonya Segbedzi, and I'm from the Association of Gerontology. And I'm here today to give you a quick overview of our rapid evidence assessment on LGBTI ageing research on housing needs and preferences. I'm just going to try and share my screen with you. So just bear with me for a moment. So uh, just before I start, I'd like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you from Jarjarwarung country and to acknowledge their elders past and present and to note that their land was never ceded. I'd also like to thank my colleague, Dr. Sandra South, who co-wrote this paper with me. So the aims of our paper were to develop recommendations for policy improvements based on an analysis of the available LGBTI ageing research on housing needs and to identify any key gaps in the evidence base. Um, our research was based on an uh, AAG scoping review of um, LGBTI ageing research more broadly, which we did in October last year. And that review is available on our website, and I recommend it to you if you are looking for any research about LGBTI older people. It's very helpfully um, classified into categories, which make it easy for you to find what you need. It was a systematic search of academic and grey literature about LGBTI people and ageing or dementia. That review found around 53 publications on the issue of housing, and uh, we then excluded uh, some of them for relevant reasons. For example, they were very old or they weren't really about housing. Um, and we manually analysed the full text of the remaining 29 publications. And here are some of the results that we came up with. Uh, firstly, the research that we looked at was basically from the last 10 years, and we saw that there was a very slight increase in 2016 and 2017. Unfortunately, we only found three publications from Australia and one from New Zealand. The rest were from Europe and the United States. The main types of studies we found were opinion pieces and descriptive studies, and also studies that explored the relationships between particular issues. Um, I guess as to be expected, most of the publications were about lesbian, gay and bisexual people. There were a few um, publications that claimed that they were about trans and gender diverse people and people living with intersex variations. But when we looked at them more closely, we, we found that there were actually very few such people included in their studies. The most commonly explored topics were uh, research issues, which I'll talk a bit more about later, discrimination, and um, LGBTI-specific housing needs. So some of our key learnings were that, um, as, as has been mentioned by Fiona, there's little or no um, LGBTI-specific housing currently available, apart from in the United States. Although we are aware of two developments that are still um, in the planning stages in Australia. We found lots of evidence of discrimination um, in housing uh, in Australia and in the United States. And this, there were higher levels of this discrimination for trans and gender diverse people and people of colour. In addition, and I think Fiona also mentioned this, 
there was a very widespread um, fear of discrimination. Uh, the majority of older LGBTI people want to live in gay-only or gay-friendly retirement houses, but there are diverse views about whether people prefer one type over the other. And in particular, there was some evidence that women would prefer women-only or lesbian-only accommodation above mainstream accommodation. And there were also some people that would prefer alternative types of housing styles beyond the traditional retirement such as co-housing. Uh, as uh, the Haag survey clearly found, affordability of housing is a major concern amongst older LGBTI people. And there are some groups within the rainbow communities that earn less than average. For example, lesbians, trans and gender diverse people, and people of colour. Uh, the research identified a range of needs that were LGBTI specific. And they included things like housing for singles, because there are a lot of older people who live alone. They talked about the critical need for housing that provides cultural and physical safety, particularly around trans and gender diverse people. They talked about the need for that housing to also be connected in some way to the wider LGBTI community. Uh, as Fiona has mentioned, the, there's a desperate need for rental housing options for older people who don't own their own homes and there's a real need for support services in addition to um, bricks and mortar. Uh, there were some uh, uh, intersectional issues identified where there's some groups that have um, you know, uh, particular needs over and above the general rainbow communities, and that um, related to people, uh, trans and gender diverse people, people of colour, people with disabilities, women in some cases, people living in rural and regional areas, and people with caregiving responsibilities. My colleague, Dr. Sandra South, conducted an assessment of the quality of the research evidence that we looked at. And overall, the quality of that evidence was low to very low due to um, issues of bias um, resulting from the research methods used and some of um, other study limitations, which are actually identified in many of the papers themselves. Nonetheless, both of us found, uh, felt that the included studies provided really valuable insights into the needs and preferences um, and experiences of older LGBTI people. But for the future, there is a real need for higher quality research evidence with a low risk of bias that will show us what does and does not work to meet older people's housing needs. So based on the results and learnings, AAG made 15 additional recommendations, in, in, and that's over and above the general research recommendations that we've made in our scoping review last year. Um, I won't go through all of those due to um, restrictions on time, uh, but you can read more about those recommendations in our paper. I just wanted to highlight um, and I guess reinforce what Fiona said, and that is that some of the key recommendations relate to the need for additional data on which research can be based, and uh, that we need to invest in, so recommendation number 15, that we need the government to invest in high quality research on housing and homelessness for older LGBTI people, and that we need that research uh, to focus specifically on Australian issues, and it needs to also focus on underrepresented groups, and they include uh, trans and gender diverse people, people with intersex variations, people with disabilities, and people of colour. So it's my great pleasure now to uh, officially launch this report and uh, to let you know that you can read the full details of the report at our website. I've just given you our basic website address there because the specific link is quite long, but hopefully uh, Ruben can put it up on the chat box for you. So our website is www.aag.asn.au. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tonya. And as someone who's read the report, that was a really great you know, overview of the content that's in there. And, you know, I too lend my voice to the argument about data and um, the report really goes through talking about the issues about when, you know, there are surveys that have dealt with LGBTI um, QA plus people in Victoria, like the Victorian Population Survey, but when you drill down to um, the older people's data, 
it's just it's just too small to be useful um, and that's a recurring theme I really encourage all the um, data nerds which I say with such endearment as a data nerd myself all the data nerds to really like um, who are listening today and all the people who ever write grants and the policy heads to really um, you know do a deep dive into the report and really look at that you know I think they've covered off really well like what are the gaps and um, and what are the issues so thank you thank you Tonya and Fiona for spending that time with us today to go through the report um, and it is I, I can I can guarantee you it is an easy read it's a hard read content wise but it is an easily accessible read which is fantastic if you've just tuned in, um, you've been listening to some excerpts from Raise the Roof, the Housing for the Age Action Group's 3CR show. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.